0: We speak today to the infamous Rick Rule uh, of Sprott US. We try and get inside his brain a little bit, and he shares with us some ideas for retail investors as to the do's and don'ts of investing. And if you want to listen to other market experts from around the world on a variety of topics, you can catch that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Enjoy the podcast. Rick Rule, how are you doing, sir? Life is wonderful. The only sort of drawback I see is uh,
1: worrying about other people and feeling sorry for people whose position is more compromised than my own. My life is great.
0: Your life is great. And are you uh, enjoying yourself at all of these online conferences? Uh, It it is wonderful. Of course, I enjoy uh, meeting
1: all my friends and making new friends in person but I must say it's easier on a 67-year-old carcass not to go through 10 or 12 time zones a month. So in truth, I'm thriving.
0: I hear you. I hear you. It it doesn't work on younger carcasses either. So uh, we better get on with it today. Um, Thanks so much, by the way, for the last um, session you did with us. I think people really, really enjoyed it. It was slightly offbeat and I think today is going to be no different. Because I want well, let's to. Let's see if we can't surpass it. Oh well, let's see if we can't. I want to. So I want to say. I want to ask you a question. A really simple question. For me. have you ever heard of a movie called Being John Malkovich? I have to admit that I am not well versed in popular
1: culture. Oh, so the answer is no. Okay. In fact, I ten days ago bought the first television I've owned for thirty five years. Right. I'll so tell you.
0: Uh, so I apologise, but no. Okay, okay. Well, some of our viewers might have heard of it. So it, the basic premise of the movie: there's a, there's an actor called John Malkovich. The basic premise of this movie is that uh, an individual he's a he's a puppeteer, and he's he he can't make a mu- make his uh, any money. He can't make a living being a puppeteer. So he has to go get a job, a proper job, and he has to get a job in an office. And one day, uh, he drops a piece of paper behind a filing cabinet and he discovers a door and this door turns out to be the gateway to John Malkovich's brain. So today, today, Rick, we are going to see if we can find a gateway into Rick Rule's brain and learn a little bit more. That's possibly the worst segue into an interview in the world, but I'm going with it. Uh, Here we go. Here we go. So, you've actually touched upon something there because um, because I wanted to talk to you about. You keep reminding me you're a 67 year old young individual uh, now, and you've been in this game for a long time. You've made a lot more money than the young version of you possibly could have imagined, I suspect. Um, But what's the plan? Are you going to do a Warren Buffett and keep going until you're 95? In which case, the question to you, Is there more to life than just math and investing?
1: Uh, I think there's a lot more to life uh, than working and investing. Uh, And I'm looking forward to exploring some of that. Uh, The truth is that I uh, absolutely, positively love what I do. And the idea that my life would be complete without working too uh, is a Uh, non-starter. And the truth is, if you stick with something for a long time, and build up uh, know-how, and just as importantly, know who. Mm. Uh, if you have 45 years of context, the truth is that the job gets easier. Uh, so the idea that I spent 45 years l- learning how to uh, contribute to my client's well-being a- a- and then somehow decided to waste that 45 years of experience uh, as a consequence of one or two too many birthdays, is a non-starter to me. Uh, certainly, you will not see me working as hard uh, in 2021 as you would have seen me work in 1991. But the truth is that given the advantages uh, that I've accrued, uh, an affiliation with Sprat, as an example, where 200 other people helped me work, uh, experience and contacts, my suspicion is I'll be able to get a lot more done now hmm. than I did then, uh, even while uh, exploring other avenues in my
0: life. Okay, you're deciding perhaps to you know pare things down a little bit, still enjoy the 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 work component, but are you, have you ever been into philanthropic entrepreneurialism, that kind of giving back, not just to your clients, but giving back to society? My wife and I are active philanthropists, uh, with mixed success, frankly.
1: Um, mm we've had some real successes and we've had some clanking failures. We have a family foundation uh, and we have begun to employ the same discipline in philanthropy that we employ in investing. The the most success that we've had, I would say over the last 30 years uh, has been in microcredit, helping build and fund banks in frontier markets, uh, that, uh, make loan to women, make loans to women entrepreneurs. Um, and we've had some striking successes, uh, in that regard. And I suspect we'll, uh, continue to do that. I've also been active in what I guess you'd call libertarian or anarcho-capitalist philanthropy, which is, uh, finding private solutions to what are perceived to be public problems. Uh, An example would be um, private solutions to environmental problems with groups like Panthera, a big cat conservation group. And I'm extremely uh, active uh, in libertarian education and outreach, a Foundation for Economic Education, Students for Liberty, Young Americans for Liberty, International Society for Individual Liberty. And that will become an important part of my life going forward. Uh, and I'm gonna do it very much the way I've done investing. Uh, I'm not gonna give unconditional checks to people. I'm not going to invest in organizations where there isn't a strong leader who writes his or her own check. I'm not going to do philanthropy in countries where local indigenous people aren't also contributors. I wanna be a partner, not a solution. Mm. Uh, as you can tell by my
0: answer <laughs> this is an important component of my life and i'm looking forward to making it more important fantastic so no freebies but you mentioned freedom um we talked in the past and you're i think anti-authoritarian in some ways is would be a fair fair comment um what 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 do you what what would you like to see? What are these freedoms about that you are willing to support? What are people trying to do? Are they trying to? Because talked, we talked about in the past about defunding government and decentralizing decision making, and perhaps anyway, one of your favourite phrases, you know, politicians buying your your vote with your money. See, so the clues are there. But what are you trying to do with your philanthropic endeavours? Well, that's a very very large topic. Um condensing it, I
1: guess, uh, I would like to see um, more exchanges between human beings be contractual and voluntary. Uh, I would like to see people cooperate with each other on their own terms, not on terms that were prescribed by other people. and so you know that's something i'm very very interested in i think there are ways to accomplish relationships between people that uh, don't involve laws don't involve guns don't involve war uh and i'm a huge believer in capitalism uh i believe that markets work i believe that markets are messy but i believe that markets work when people like the World Economic Forum talk about a reset of capitalism, uh, my recommendation would be that we try capitalism. Uh, I don't think the free markets, unconstrained by lobbyists, unconstrained by subsidies, unconstrained, frankly, by extortion and fraud, have ever existed. And I'm very interested in uh, helping create a climate where young people increasingly look to voluntary uh, rather than government solutions and interactions with people.
0: That actually sounds quite attractive. Um, so you don't believe that people are entitled to um, money from the government or otherwise. You feel that they need to work harder. Again, again, one of your quotes, that you, someone asked you about. Oh, what are the secrets to investing? Do your, do your homework, work, save, invest. Your your take control is is your mantra. Yes. Uh, with regards to the first question, um, entitlements, uh, I don't believe
1: that anybody's perceived wants or needs are a call on anybody else's means. Uh, if you believe that you have the right to extort the proceeds from someone else's labor, what you're saying in effect is that your perception of the world's needs entitles you to enslave them. Uh, and I'm not a believer in slavery. I'm not a believer in judicial slavery. I'm not a believer in slavery that only lasts till June, which is to say that the uh, center extorts 50% of someone's income. I I guess the focus of my um, philanthropy would be that I'm anti-slavery.
0: Okay, that is a big topic right there. Um, Yeah, yeah. I think I want to step away from that conversation because again, I think that we could we could get in deep, and that that you know that could be a couple of hours worth of of quite meaty discussion. But um, let's make this about investing, because otherwise I'll get stick uh, as as usual if I don't stick to the topic. Um, So. People have uh, they look at you and they look at and they think of the big wins, they think of the, the paladins, the making 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 those big calls. But those are those are those only happen every now and again. And Peter Grosskopf, your colleague, said to me, Sprot, get it right, probably, and he's quite happy with this, about fifty percent of the time. Which I think is you know very says a lot to normal investors, uh, regular investors, that with your resources. Uh, available to you, the intellect available to you, the, the time available to you, um, that investing is tough. So, my que- the, the question to you is do you think your success, your success, Rick Rule's success, has come from these big moments or is it collective of smaller wins?
1: Uh, two things. The money that I now invest sensibly, I made through very aggressive speculation, uh, and they're very different uh, disciplines. As a speculator, you are successful because you work hard and you're successful because you anticipate failure and accept failure as the price of success. In my early stage speculations, which is to say my exploration speculation, particularly my generative uh, exploration speculation, and to a lesser degree, my frontier market speculation, uh, causes me in those activities to anticipate 75 or 80% uh, numerical failure rate. That is to say, I lose money on many, many, many more starts that I make money on. The great arithmetic is that I lose 25 or 30% when I lose, and I make 1,000 or 1,500% 1, when I win. Then a 15-bagger uh, amortizes an awful lot of sin elsewhere in the portfolio and, of course, leaves room left over uh, for an acceptable rate of return. In the investing part of the business, the probabilities are very different. My upsides aren't the same, but my, my downsides are much, much different. If you're in a market that's uh, cyclical, I would argue that all of my markets are very cyclical. What you learn uh, is that if you're a rational investor or speculator, you're almost always early, uh, and I'm early. What that means as an investor is that if you are in a sector that you see as down and beat up, but going to come back, you don't buy the most leveraged participant in the sector. You don't need to speculate because the market beta is so strong that if you capture the beta, the alpha looks after itself. So as an example, I believe that three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, we're going to have an extraordinary rally in oil and gas. At present, uh, I'll be looking to play that by owning uh, Exxon, Chevron, Gazprom, names like that. Uh, I won't need to be in the sub-100 million market cap space because I'll get all kinds of beta in the big names, and I'll get a dividend that overcomes the time value of money challenge. Uh, As a speculator, of course, uh, I'm involved in a very different game. And I would say, as I say, that my success as a speculator comes – from a tolerance for loss, uh, I'm not psychologically or financially averse to losing because I consider it to be part of winning. Many people aren't built to speculate, even if they're very, very wealthy. They can't take the psychological trauma of being wrong three or four times for every time that they're right.
0: Yeah, like I think we talked last time um, about um, you you have followers. people will follow. The way that you invest, if, if you invest, they'll invest, and you have other people who are clients, and therefore, whatever you do benefits them t- t- to you know a lesser degree, but um, th- it benefits them, and th- th- that's their choice. And th- there's something called the greater fool theory, which suggests that if you get in at the if you get in um, at the right point and you leave at the right point, you always win. You don't need the fundamentals of the business to work; you just need momentum on your side. Do you um, what? What do you think regular retail investors can learn from the way that you behave, given that your business model is different from theirs, uh, if they want to make their own investment uh, choices and decisions? I don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all.
1: Um, Sprout probably has 220,000 customers worldwide. and My suspicion is that there's probably 220,000 solutions. There isn't one solution. Uh, so I would ask investors to invest first in their own education uh, and invest in coming to know themselves and their psyche as human beings uh, and make the investment investment process consistent with their financial needs, uh, their psychological capabilities, and their goals. Um, many, many, many investors don't understand that the investment process, And more importantly, the speculative process is personal. And when I um, onboard a client, a client that I'm going to be working with, it's pretty odd. The client will spend a lot of time asking me about investments, and I'll spend a lot of time asking the client about the client. Uh, Once I know more about the client, then I can begin to uh, narrow down an investment strategy that's appropriate to him or her. But so much of this is personal. I didn't believe that when I first started, by the way. Uh, When I first started, when I was a young man, like many young men, if you would have asked me what I wanted, I would say, I want to make a lot of money. Uh, That's interesting, but it isn't relevant. Uh, If you don't know what that entails, you don't know how you plan to make the money, why you plan to make the money, what risks you are willing to assume to make the money, how much time it's going to take,
0: what you'll do if it goes wrong, what you'll do if it goes right.
1: you probably
0: won't make any money. I agree with you. I think, and I, I repeat, everyone has a different business model from you. So if you think you're climbing on board a train with other people, there's lots of ways those people can ruin your day. Uh, so I do agree with that. And what interests me is the what you talked about on the onboarding components there, trying to understand the individual. That's great, but I, I suspect there's probably going to be two or three uh, components there that you use. Which are heavily weighted, you know. So it's going to be risk profile. I guess it's going to be significant. You know, what's their tolerance for risk? Uh, It's be heavily weighted versus the twentieth thing that you ask them. So, what do they say when you're sort of going through this process? It's an education for them, I'm sure, but aren't they slightly confused? Yeah, there's a bit of resistance. Um, One of the things I like to do is use a visualization tool that you or
1: you may or may not be able to identify with before. um Britain, what metric, uh, you may remember lumber yards and millineries, and they had yardsticks. Mm-hmm. And so I asked the prospect to a visual yardstick uh, and very low risk, very low return is at one inch and very high risk and very high return is at 36 inches. Mm-hmm. And so I asked them to describe to me how many inches along that continuum they'd like to go. And what I tell them is, of course, what they want is low risk and high return. But if you bend that yardstick, of course it breaks. You can't have low risk and high return. So when people ask me my price target for something, uh, I say uh, higher, but before we go to where we hope it might go, ask me how much you can afford to lose. Uh, I tell people as a rule of thumb that if their target is extremely speculative, 35% compound internal rates of return in private placements. But if they're going to follow that strategy, they have to be willing to lose 150% of their expected return, which is to say, if you embark on a strategy that could give you 35% compound internal rates of return over time, you need to be willing to lose 50% of your money. Uh, And when I ask people what they're willing to lose
0: rather than what their goal is, we begin to have a rational discussion. Okay, you've learned a few things along the way um, with regards to the do's and the don'ts and we're going to talk about them uh, towards the end of this conversation. But what, what do you put your success down to? Timing, hard work, or you know, in, 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 you know, endurance, your endurance uh, here, or are you just smarter than everyone?
1: Certainly not smarter than everyone. Uh, I, I'm not being humble with regards to that. Uh, I have been very fortunate to uh, both hire and partner with a lot of people over time who were, at least in their own specialty, substantially smarter than I. And I would suggest that I'm a wonderful, a very good utilizer of human resources. I, I may be the best hirer of geologists that I ever met. Uh, and if I had a secret, <clears throat> that would probably be one. Um, I'm a very hard worker uh, and I'm extraordinarily disciplined, which helps. Another thing that helps is that early on my career, and we talked about this before, uh, I didn't understand in cyclical businesses that markets worked, that the cure for high prices was high prices and the cure for low prices was low prices. The consequence of that is that I experienced in my late 20s uh, a a real financial setback, which is to say I went below zero. And there's no uh, personal circumstance that can teach you a lesson about markets quite as well as losing everything that you have, plus more. And I would say that the... uh, The third thing that has really helped me is what I laughingly call know who. Uh, I've been a reasonably good identifier of top-notch entrepreneurs early in their career. And I back then, in fact, became indispensable to them. Mm. Uh, And that's something that I'm continuing today. I'm always looking for entrepreneurs uh, in their late 20s or early 30s, where they have the brains, they have the determination, They have the ethics, uh, but they don't have the following. uh, And I allow them to borrow mine to the benefit of my following. And I guess the the final thing, we talked about this too. I was about 30 when I decided I wasn't gonna worry about making money. What I was gonna do was worrying about enjoying what I was doing and worry about adding value. And when I started concentrating on creating utility for other people, Within a quarter, (laughs) I started making what were, um, for the son of a single working school teacher, uh, really incalculable amounts of money. Now, it it isn't really that I made huge amounts of money, it's that my calculating skills weren't too advanced then, my expectations were low, but but that's really, I, I think, been an important driver in. My financial success and also in my enjoyment of what I do.
0: Okay, I, I, mean, you t- I think I've heard you tell that story before about losing your money, uh, you know, getting down to zero or below zero. as You described, it, and I don't, I, you know, I want to make it more than just an anecdote because it, it, it's it's a great story, it's a salutary lesson. But again, I, I know people who've attempted to take their lives have succeeded in taking their lives because they've put themselves in a position. And I want people to understand. I said this to you last time. Some of the things you say. Some of of your mantras are really, really important, important to take note of. There's meaning behind it. There's a gravitas and there's a a learning behind it. And and I want want to make this as a serious point because of the impact it has. So we're currently in a bull market and I've seen this where people think it's never going to end. They behave in a different way. They are invincible. To your point earlier, they think they're smarter than everyone. It's gonna be great. They are—they do that um, spreadsheet millionaire thing. You know, they work out how rich they're going to be: ten baggers, twenty baggers, all the way, Rick, all the way. But the reality is, at some point, the merry-go-round stops, and you need to see where you are. So your strategy, one's strategy, your own strategies. Your point: each person has their own strategy it needs to be right. So in all seriousness, I mean, what are, what are the big things that people really need to take note of to ensure that they don't put themselves in a position that like you were in or some of the people I was talking about refer to find themselves in? I think for every investment
1: that an investor makes, that he or she needs to write down why they made the investment, what their goals are. What will cause them to declare victory, sell and walk away? What will cause them to declare defeat? Now, it's important that as data changes and the world changes, that your goals and your plans change, but they need to change proactively. You can't change a plan if you don't have a plan. I agree with you as an example. So let me do an illustration. I agree with you that we're in a precious metals bull market. What would cause me to change my mind? What would cause me personally to change my mind would be uh, if the U.S. budget deficit closed to 1% of GDP, or if the interest rate on the U.S. 10 year Treasury was 250 to 300 basis points positive, or if the market share of precious metals and precious metals related assets in the US market exceeded 3%, that is, ceased to be under-owned. The market share of precious metals and precious metals related assets could exceed 3% if we had negative real interest rates and it wouldn't change my premise because the market share would deserve to be above 3%. But a circumstance where the factors that I think are propelling gold higher and hence gold stocks higher, uh, have at least broad uh, quantitative definitions. So I keep in my mind a series of quantitative goalposts that I monitor and to the extent that the market begins to approach those goalposts, I need to become more cautious. Markets are pernicious uh, pricing signals. That is to say a rising market justifies the narrative that caused us to participate in the market. So as prices go up and the opportunity becomes arithmetically less attractive, it becomes psychologically more attractive. And the consequence of that is that you have to guard uh, against your own hubris uh, and uh, against the seductiveness of being right uh, and increasing equity prices,
0: right? So, we, we, just a shorthand version of that one. As part of your thesis, your investment strategy, you need to understand the macro. You know, as part of your decision making, not just rely on the fundamentals of the what the the, the company is telling you uh, is going on. Because this, one, this, one I'm getting at. It, it, it it's real, investing can be really simple if you let it be. I think, um, you know, so. For you, if you're looking at that kind of macro, and that may sound very, very technical, some people, and they're never in a hundred years going to do the homework to try and understand what you said. Okay, in which case, if you can't be bothered doing no. your homework, don't invest is what I would recommend. But um, or or go and sign up with Sprott. That's the other thing. Um, but you know, if yeah. but if you're looking at companies, like some simple things. Again, I come back to things that you've said to me in the past, which is I only back management teams that have built mines, got a track record of building mines. Which is great, right? But I think you, you and I probably know there's a, there's a handful of those guys that you, you could go, or maybe a couple of handfuls, be generous. Um, how do the young guys, how do the young bucks get in and what? how should we treat them? What do you look for when you see a team that I've never built a mine, I've kind of been part of something that has, trust me, it'll be fine. And your response to that is what?
1: With regards to the young bucks, uh, I never back them with client money. Uh, I back them with my own on occasion. I'm much more willing now to lose my money than my reputation. An example would be uh, Zach Flood, uh, who has worked a decade to be an overnight success. Uh, I knew Zach's father, now deceased. He was a very good friend of mine very well. Mm -hmm. If I don't know somebody uh, and people that I know well don't know somebody, they have no way in the door. Uh, They need to become successful with their uncle's money before they become successful with Rick's money. If there is community consensus, that is to say, if, you know, Robert Friedland is going to write a check, and Ross Beattie is going to write a check, and the club are are all going to write checks to back some young person, Uh, and this person in American football parlance is going to be the ball carrier, but he's going to have a very, very solid, big, mean, beefy line in front of him, you know, I'll probably play. But I won't play with Sprout's money. I won't play with the client's money. I'll just play with my own money, because in that case, the the overwhelming
0: probability is failure. The successes are extremely gratifying. Great point. Because again, we have a lot of companies come on here and go, "Hey, Uncle Eric's put some money in our company. It must be right. He's put a million, two million bucks in." It's, that's a lot of money, and for most people. But for, for Uncle Eric, uh, that I suspect that's, you know, pocket change or a rounding error. Uh, not not being facetious here, but I want I want the retail audience not to buy the movie based on something as small as that. I mean, re- really, that that's that's a, it's it's a it's an indic- it's an indication that something there, but it's a bet. It's not an investment. Eric has a skill set that I don't have.
1: Uh, and he has a level of confidence that I don't have, which is why he's substantially wealthier <laughs> than I am. Uh, if you were to ask Eric today about the gold price or the silver price, uh, he would give you a higher price than the price that exists today. And he's absolutely confident in that. Uh, he's a pretty good chartered accountant and one would discount uh, his forecasts at your own risk. But that's not how I invest. Uh, the gold price to me is the gold price that I see in the computer, or at least the forward strip. Secondly, uh, Eric has a journalist sense that's uncanny. Uh, Eric has the uh, has the understanding of the ability of a story to capture the popular imagination. Uh, I told you earlier I have known a television for 35 years and I can't dress without my wife's assistance. So, The idea that I would be as tuned into popular culture and the power of a narrative as Eric is a non-starter. What Eric and I share, and probably to a greater degree than I, is the tolerance for loss. Uh, The willingness to lose 20% or 30% or 40% in hopes of making 1,500% or 2,000%. Um, Eric and I are very similar in that
0: regard. And he's um, much more aggressive than I do you think nice guys can win in this industry? I think
1: nice guys primarily do win. Uh, I think that people who are concerned uh, about the well-being of their employees and shareholders are the ones who do win. I can't imagine a, a nicer set of people than, you know, Ross Beatty, um, Bob Quartermain, Pierre Lassonde. Um, <laughs> although he's prone to throw temper in temper tantrums, um, Robert Friedland has been extraordinarily philanthropic, extraordinarily generous, and he takes uh, an almost religious comfort in the well-being and success of his employees. Um, so yes, I think in every circumstance, nice, nice guys are the ones who win.
0: I, mean, I think there's an interesting conversation around the psychological nature a breakdown of CEOs, not just in mining, but across, across the board. You, know, I, I, you know, I think it would, if someone had actually said to you, nice guys don't win, it'd be equally easy to um, make that argument. Um, so at different times of your life, when you've got a bit of money, a bit more grace, I think you, 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 can, you can be a little bit more thoughtful.
1: It may be true, but it's contrary to my experience. Uh, I've known some very not nice guys. Uh, both on Wall Street uh, and on Bay Street. And when I look back, uh, yeah, maybe a couple of them bought nice houses, nice cars, um, you know, maybe even big yachts, probably financed three divorces. Uh, But I don't see them uh, building a legacy. Uh, I don't see them, in my experience, being happy, uh, which I think is important. And importantly, I don't see them as being investable. Uh, if I have a CEO that uh, doesn't take joy in uh, seeing his or her uh, shareholders and employee pros- employees prosper, what I see is a lone wolf. Uh, I see somebody who has deprived themselves of the very network advantages that have made me a success. And I, well, I feel sorry for them, uh, I have absolutely no interest at all in risking my clients' fortunes behind somebody who is going to be more
0: likely than not the author of their own failure. Now, you've made, you haven't made a conscious effort to move with the Times. You're, you're on an interview daily, it seems. Your face is everywhere. You've moved with the Times despite not having a TV. Do you enjoy that, or is it just part of the game that you need to promote you, yourself and SPROT? Uh, Or is there something bigger that you're trying to get over? And I'm I'm, I'm harking back to my philanthropic conversation at the beginning, which is because you have these mantras, right? You repeat a lot of mantras. And some people accuse you of repeating them too often. I'm not one of them. Um, What do you feel um, about this new media world that you exist in? And why are you doing it? Most of the money
1: that Sprott has spent in the last 10 years in conventional advertising has been wasted. And the money that we've spent in investor outreach and education uh, has enabled us to grow to $17 billion under management. So professionally, I do it because it works. I'm also good at it, Um, that helps. In my declining years, (laughs) uh, which by the way, I hope are farther off, uh, teaching and mentoring are increasingly important to me. As an example, I'm replacing myself as a portfolio manager across many of our products simply because my management style requires, you know, basically uh, 10 years uh, of duration. And at age 67, I can't with a straight face promise 10 years of duration. So mentoring managers is increasingly going to become more important to me than mentoring. With regards to social media, uh, if you look at Sprott with, I don't know, 200, 220, 230,000 customers and shareholders, there's simply no way to physically engage with all of them, irrespective of my age. But I can do an interview with you, which is viewed by 40,000 people. Uh, Some substantial number of them, four or 500 of them, will reach out to me. Uh, I can learn from them, I can teach I can teach them, uh, I can develop relationships with those who I should be developing relationships with. Uh, this technological platform coming at this stage in my career, uh, that is the fact that technology has allowed me to more efficiently utilize my experience and my gifts, uh, has been a very pleasant circumstance for me and what I'm going to push
0: as hard as I can for as long as I can. Yeah, I agree with you. I wish I. I think the mining industry is slightly backward in, in, in many ways uh, compared to other verticals, such as technology or retail or mm-hmm. FMCG broadly, um, and and I do hope that this period we've been through means that more companies take advantage of it, like like you have. Um, I talked about sort of spreadsheet jockeys earlier. You know, they're going to be spreadsheet millionaires, um, and it's kind of and I think you touched upon it. It's easy to be blinded by wealth. In, in, in many ways, not f- not focus on the numbers in front of you. Um, when you when you see uh, numbers in front of you which look too good to be true, are they invariably too good to be true? Because uh, you know you've had a few you've had a few you know hit them out of the park moments, but not every day of the week, right? Mercifully, I would say there have
1: been twenty five or thirty circumstances in my life in the speculative side where the possible number, not the probable number, but the possible number was extraordinary. Uh, And where uh, as hard as I tried to disabuse myself of my premise, that the data made greed prevail over fear. Uh, And in those circumstances, uh, you know, an example would be Lumina Copper. Ross and I visited in the formation of Lumina Copper. Uh, I think the copper price was 70 cents a pound. And I remember thinking the incentive price for copper at that point in time was probably a buck and a half a pound, uh, which meant that copper could probably go to two or two and a quarter before the industry could increase supply enough to meet uh, pricing signals. And we were able to buy uh, billions of pounds of copper in the ground that wasn't economic at a dollar, but would be wildly economic at $2. I had to uh, confront the fact that, despite the fact that I thought that the copper price had to go up, that I wasn't God, I didn't control the fact that the copper price went up, nor could I control the timing in which it did go up. So I, I had to tolerate failure. But the numbers I had in mind, similar to the Paladin numbers I had in mind in the uranium space, were very, very, very large, and they were handily, handily exceeded and as i say as a speculator i've been lucky enough to have that circumstance now mind you over 45 years uh, i've had that happen to me 30 times or so Uh, in the investment business um, for the last 30 years uh, i've been statistically more successful financially maybe a little less successful but if you know if a broad uh, resource class that, where the resource is essential for the well being of mankind, is priced at a substantial discount to the cost of producing the stuff, one of two things happens either the price goes up or the stuff runs away, you know, runs out. And being behind that investment thesis, uh, just trying to be in the way of something that has to happen, asking oneself questions where the answer begins with when rather than if has been extraordinary for me and it's
0: been extraordinary for me um, in relatively large numbers um, you're, you're saying look if you look at the right numbers it could be uh, it, it could be good um, yeah, it's Buff, just the, you know Buffett says
1: the says investing is like a baseball game with no called strikes and so what you do most of the time is nothing if the pitcher blows a ball, a ball by it they don't get to call a strike so what you do, is wait with your bat, which is your money and your discipline, and you wait
0: for a slow pitch. But when a slow pitch comes, a fat pitch comes, you gotta swing. Yeah, okay. Um I get the analogy despite not, not being a baseball fan. Um and and, and I and again each one of these questions has brought out or eked out a learning which people should be listening to. And I do talk about your, the, the, these mantras that you have, and they're there, they last for a reason. So, you know, you have you, you have been lucky in your life. You've had a you know, long career, s- successful career uh, in, in a space you enjoy. You like it. You're a hard worker, you said. Um, but y- you've made some mistakes along the way and you've picked up these things. And these, these mantras have stuck with you for a reason. Is that right? I mean, is, is that why you keep repeating them?
1: I keep repeating them because they're an extraordinary, efficient communications tool. Um, a slogan sticks in somebody's mind. And illustrates the point that you're trying to make. Uh, when I say the cure for low prices is low prices and the cure for high prices is high prices, people can remember that for a decade uh, and it saves them trying to remember a 10 minute soliloquy. Uh, I give them the 10 minute soliloquy uh, to explain and reinforce the mantra, but mantras are a critical uh, communication tool.
0: And I like them. Um, do you? Get frustrated by some of the games played in this market. I'm thinking of the retail and family offices that we we talk to here. Okay, there are games afoot, and as we've said multiple times on this interview, everyone has got their own different their own business model, and you should be aware that other people have the ability to ruin your day. Does um, the way that the industry has played out with new media, which is something you know we've talked about here, new media has been party to a, a, a new way of disrupting the market, sure, but it's also, I think it hasn't helped a lot of retail investors make money. I agree with you completely. Um, one of the reasons
1: why mentoring is important to me is that while I, uh, I can't change the world, uh, I can attempt to change the fortune of the Sprout universe. Uh, and I can attempt to grow the Sprout universe by educating investors in how to protect themselves from themselves mm. we're in a circumstance now where uh, a coalition of good promoters can get behind a lousy property spend seven or eight hundred thousand dollars on financial public relations and raise 20 million dollars <throat> and then they salary over five years um, it has always been that way in bull markets do i like it no i think it's disgusting um, am I going to be able to do anything about it? No, not at all. Other than uh, helping a class of investors learn how to exert discipline, uh, help them to understand that to work is more essential to success than greed or aggression, that type of thing. And you know, I'm, I'm actually getting somewhere. of uh, these portfolio rankings that I have done for your audience and others, I've now graded over 15,000 portfolios. Uh, And uh, I have been able to educate people by focusing on something in my communications with them that's of critical interest to them, which is to say their own fortune. Uh, I I can do very broad-based lessons in a discussion like this, which has some impact on somebody But when I send them back one through 10 rankings of their own portfolio, one being best, 10 being worst, and I comment on companies, um, well-conceived scam, head for the hills, Uh, there's something about that that strikes a chord with somebody. They might like it, they might not, but they focus on the lesson much more intently because it's their own fortune. Uh, And I'm very proud of the work that Sprout has been able to do this year uh, by helping educate people. It's of course been enormously financially rewarding to Sprout as well. So it's nice to do well by doing good.
0: It is. It, it is uh, when you've got the opportunity to do so. Let me talk to you about your views on the market going forward because and, and how it informs the products that you're creating. Okay. So uh, equities at the moment gone a little bit crazy. It's hard not to be able to make money, it, it seems, um, because some, some of the companies that are getting financed, as you say, it's a beggar's belief. But it is what it is. These cycles are what people live for. Um, with regards to some of your debt-focused products, you know, you, you've you created a few o- options there because you're trying to smooth the curves in terms of the in- income, I guess, or the, the, the revenue, I guess. Um, are you going to be building more of these regular income type products going forward uh, because of the way that you foresee the market going?
1: Yes. Um, also because we're good at it. Um, if you examine the market period 2011 to 2019, the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Resource Index, which is the index that Sprott is measured against, lost 88% in nominal terms and more in real terms. Sprouts' lending activities on balance sheet generated a 15% compound annual internal rate of return. 15% is a handsome headline return. But when you juxtapose it with an index that lost 88%, you understand that lending is a superior business to equity. Um, we have done extraordinarily well in that business in an institutional sense. But I really want to democratize that product. I really want to create the Sprout branded lending and income product for the mass affluent. Uh, I, of course, value the fact that the largest institutions in the world can become our customers with a $10 million ticket. What I want is to be able to democratize that so that... Uh, more ordinary human beings can play the game with a twenty-five thousand dollar ticket or a fifty thousand dollar ticket. That's very, very
0: important to me. Okay, I get the short-term uh, capital re- return. You get you clipping a coupon on that for however the term the term of the loan. I, I like it. Is there ever a conversation where you're thinking this is great? The bulk of our debt products will will follow that that same formula. Do you ever look at an asset and go, I tell you what, if we step in here, make a bet and say, it looks a bit shaky, but the underlying asset, if we can securitize it, uh, means that if this company falls over, we'll be okay, in which case, what sort of multiples do you look at in that scenario? Well, no like one, wants to be, no one wants to be chasing that scenario because the, the Red Book value and the sales process, it's, t- it's costly, it takes time. I get it, but it, it must be part of the consideration.
1: Well, certainly in every loan we make, uh, we know, or at least we have a good idea who we can sell the asset to okay. if the borrower wobbles and doesn't pay us back. Okay. Um, we're asset-based lenders. Um, We're making loans to companies with no visible means of repayment uh, if the project doesn't work. Uh, And if we have a good strategic sense, if we've underwritten it well, and if we know who our go to will be if our borrower fails, um, we don't lose money. Remember, and I'm sure you know this, but some of your listeners won't. The worst piece of debt is better than the best piece of equity on any individual balance sheet. I've learned that you can take away a substantial part of my upside if you take away damn near all my downside. Um, uh, now that isn't to say that I'm not an aggressive speculator, I am, uh, but those allocations come out of different pockets for me.
0: No, I, I understand that. I guess what I'm getting at is there's got to be a tough guy under there which goes, I'll tell you what, I'm not sure whether these guys are going to be able to repay or not. but. Right now, this is this is a cheap bet for me because 10 million bucks, 20 million bucks, or whatever your ticket size is, that's nothing compared to what I think the underlying asset could be worth. us, even on a red books basis, occasionally, we're not loan to own guys. We're lenders. The worst thing that happens to us is we have to
1: foreclose. Two bad things happen: we become operators rather than lenders. We're good lenders, not good operators. And the second thing is it's bad for our reputation. Uh, If people think that you're allowed to own guys uh, and not lenders, um, it's bad for your reputation on the street. If uh, a borrower has a wobble, if something goes wrong, and that borrower calls us uh, and says, you know, this month fine. Next month looks shaky. January doesn't look good at all. Uh, Here's my problem. Here's what I'm going to do about it. Can you help me? We'll move heaven and earth for that person. If we don't get a call and we don't get a check, our response is very different. I don't
0: mean to be a tough guy, but my job is to get it paid back. But if they're not producer, if they've got no cash flows, if they have not been able to go to the market and say, hey, I want to refinance out these guys, will you help me? No one's listening. What happens then? Um, I I think we've had
1: 2 absolute failures in 10 years. And I think the sum total of those failures has been know, $3 million in losses okay. against uh, several billion dollars in deployments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is that our absolute default rate is de minimis. probably 40 or 50% of our loans uh, experience a technical default at some point in time in the loan term. And I'm not trying to say we encourage it, uh, but you know, we're certainly familiar with it and, and we certainly understand how to engage in corporate support or, if need be, corporate
0: triage. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for one second doubting your commercial acumen here. And like three million loss against the, those assets under measure, nothing, right? But what I'm digging away at here is trying to say, well, are there cases where because you've issued a loan, the underlying assets were significantly more than than the loan, you're aware of that and you can, you know, who you're going to sell it to if that. Day comes, you're still going to be up on the deal, well up on the deal, possibly better than you would have been. Uh, Not usually
1: better uh, because you have to leave something in place um, for the people who brought you along. Mm. We, We need to receive the compensation that we've agreed to receive. If the loan becomes riskier, if it becomes extended, if it becomes rescheduled, that's okay, but we need to be paid for that too. Uh, compensation above the compensation that's been agreed to isn't compensation that we need. Although sometimes we take contingent compensation, warrants would be an example, and and sometimes those have been extremely pleasant for us. The most important thing is to avoid loss. Uh, as a lender, you look to shelter your downside. If you do that, your upside takes care of itself. It's a lovely business in that regard.
0: Emotional uh, decision making is rarely a good thing. When are the moments where you can get passionate about investing? I love bear markets. Uh, I love circumstances
1: where the market either bored, is bored by something or hates something, and where there's a clear path out of it. Uh, I like educating people to accept unpopular themes. Uh, You know, I I, I really, really, really like that. I also like my ability to network. Uh, I I like somebody to come to me with an idea that needs fleshing out, and and me knowing from my Rolodex, admittedly a dated term, my database, I guess, is the term now, that there are uh, several people who I know that could further uh, that story who would benefit from furthering it? Um, that kind of thing is enormously fun for me.
0: Okay, that's where the passions are. Well, look, I think we're running out of time here because I mean, you, you've got you've got somewhere to be, and and I need to. Know, so, do you know what happens at the end of being John Malkovich, or in this case, being Rick Rule? You're gonna you have to watch I'm it. I'm afraid I don't. But what happens is, <laughs> they, he gets spat out of the brain into a ditch at the in a New York Jersey turnpike. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel I'm about to be spat out into a ditch uh, at that New Jersey turnpike. Uh, but I, before I go, thank you very much for today. Wise words, uh, indeed, as always. Uh, love hearing what you're saying. Um, and I think you know, if anyone watching this wants to go behind the uh, the sprot wall, uh, they should uh, go and talk. Well, they can talk directly to you, can't they? You seem to be very yes. Open. Uh, and might I
1: make my might, might I make my offer to your listeners? Yes, please. Uh, Any of your listeners who would like to know more about the way we think in a specific lesson around their own portfolio may go to a web link, sproutusacom front slash rankings. You'll find a web form there. If you enter your natural resource equities holdings, uh, I will rank those that I know one to 10. And I'll comment on individual issues where I think that my comment might have some value. Uh, In addition to that, uh, I will send your listeners two charts. I'm not a technical analyst, but these are illustrations. One, the Barron's Gold Mining Index, which is the longest running and most inclusive gold equity index I know. And the other is a 100 year uh, commodity chart that talks about the valuations of commodities relative to other sectors of the economy and financial markets that I think prepares people for uh, a commodities bull market that I see coming four years from now or five years from now. So, once again, SproutUSA.com/ forward slash rankings uh, for individual rankings, where I can, uh, answers to questions uh, and those two charts. Uh, It's been a wonderful circumstance doing this. I've learned a ton and I've been able to teach a lot too, which is all one can ask for.
0: Rick. Thank you very much for your time. I'll let you get about your day, and we hope to see you soon. Thank you very much.
1: A pleasure, a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me back on. I hope I, uh, I, I hope I merit
0: a third visit. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will by popular demand. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, CruxInvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn.